Welcome to the Harbinger of Fun podcast. We talk about what makes something fun, why it matters, and how to wield its mighty powers. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Harbinger of Fun podcast. I am Joe Morris. Uh, I am, for those who don't know, I'm a game designer. I've been a game designer for 20 years. I've worked for Walt Disney Imagineering on board games and things like that. My uh, co-host uh, today is Paulina Slivkova. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself for, for a quick second, Paulina, and what you've done? Sure. I am a UI UX designer. I work with uh, augmented and virtual reality. I specialize in educational apps and training and simulations and uh, me and Joe actually used to work together at a company making educational content. So, uh, and our talks would always turn into talking about anxiety. So <laughs> that's why he invited me to this podcast so that I can chip in because uh, I feel like I'm a subject matter expert in the topic. <laughs> at least not, <laughs> not that as a specialist, but as, a, as someone experiences that. And uh, yeah, I'm excited yeah. to talk about fear and I, um, yeah. All nice right. to meet you. And yeah, and our, our special guest today, um, please let me know if I pronounce this correct, Arash Javapakt. I And there's so many things uh, to talk about. So you're the author of Afraid, um, Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. Um, uh, I would love to know, and of course, you're, you are... Um, you are very, we, we got referred to you from Russell Kennedy, who I, has made, who basically um, talks about how to heal anxiety. And that's, or the, your name came up in conversation and I was so curious and I really wanted to interview you. Um, so I'd love to know more about your history. Um, actually, do, uh, do you want to spend a quick 20 seconds talking about a little bit about your career and what you do? Sure. Um, uh, thanks for having me, Joanne Paulina, uh, and uh, hello to everybody who's listening. So I'm a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. I'm director of the Stress, Trauma, and Anxiety Research Clinic at Wayne State University, which is basically a clinic that tries to bridge research and cl real clinical work. So I, as a clinician, of, work, work, mostly work with uh, people with history of trauma. I work with first responders, refugees, survivors of torture, human trafficking, and all sorts of anxiety disorders. On the research side, we look at how trauma, stress, anxiety impacts the brain and body from the genes to inflammation, body, and specifically in first responders and refugees. We look at the longitudinal impact of trauma on psyche and on the brain and the body we also have some cool innovative uh, ways of addressing trauma impacts uh, in people uh <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> art therapy dance and movement therapies and uh right uh, uh in your alley is uh, mixed reality augmented reality my lab is a birthplace of a very innovative mixed reality technology for treatment of phobias and ptsd and of course, I also uh, am engaged in uh, public scholarly work, working, talking to the public through different uh, media venues about any area of overlap of the public interest and my fields of expertise. That's so awesome. There's, uh, there's so many questions that we have because our, so this podcast is about um, creatives. It's about how people, creative people make fun products. But really, kind of the core of that is the creative individual themselves. 
And usually what we found is that creative people are a bit more, um, I don't know if sensitive is the right word, but they're, they're, they have a lot more touch points when it comes to fear and anxiety. And, and there's, there's a correlation between that and being a creative person. And so I want to help, you know, to really make a really fun product at its core, you need to make sure that the creative person is taken care of. And, um, so I'd love to dive deeper into your studies and research. Um, before I go into that, I really would love to know how you got started in this field. What what was the what was the what was the impetus for you where the interest started to to dive into fear and anxiety? You want a long story or a short story? <laughs> it's I'm I'm here for the long story. <laughs> so I actually, so I'm from Iran and where I went to medical school, you choose what you want to do. And if you want to go to medical school when you're in high school, and then you go to seven years of medical school. And I was in love with physics and computer programming, but I just became a physician because I thought it's cool and fancy. That was my only reason for going to medical school. Throughout medical school, I was in different Areas of interest, I wanted to be a radiologist because I loved image processing. And I wanted to be a facial reconstructive surgeon until I learned about the brain and how amazing it is. And it was mm-hmm. very cool to me to look at how changes in the brain affect the way you and I feel, think, experience emotions, and perceive the world. So I got drawn into the field of psychiatry during my residence in psychiatry. Actually, I started with interest in psychosis. I did some research, some work. And then a mentor of mine said, how about you do a review article on post-traumatic stress disorder? Just learn a little bit about PTSD. I started doing uh, some research and I fell in love because of multiple reasons. Number one, we always find a little bit of ourselves in other things, right? I, who is that has never experienced anxiety. So it was mm-hmm. curious for self reasons also. And then I found this field very fascinating for one reason. There are many people who are in the research of PTSD and anxiety who are also clinicians. Most of those are uh, basic neuroscientists. Number two is that these are very treatable conditions. You can have for someone who's suffering significantly from anxiety, social anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, And in a matter of months, they're back on their feet and they're back to their normal life. I can do a good combination of medications and psychotherapy, and I love both of them. I love to do psychotherapy. I just don't want to just give people pills. And, of course, a lot of these people, as you mentioned earlier, like creative people, are high-functioning people who are dealing with anxiety. And that was very fascinating and cool for me to help these people. When it comes to trauma specifically, I had a feeling for people who go through trauma because they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then boom, the whole life changes. Uh, so, and I found it a very fascinating and rewarding field. I really enjoy it now. And then later on, I brought my, brought my other interests uh, in. I started doing brain imaging research, functional MRIs. There's a lot of physics and mathematics there. Now, mixed reality, augmented reality technology, there's a lot of computer programming. So uh, I, I now have the best of all the worlds that I was interested in. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, I'm curious, is, uh, is the way that people perceive fear and anxiety? And again, I don't want to talk about the, the hard trauma that people experience, like war refugees. But uh, if we take, you know, if we take just a general fear, um, is, is there a way how people perceive it or how people... How the attitude to that has changed over the years in your career. Um, 
especially because you use so much technology. So you present people with quantitative data. Um, mm-hmm. So do you, do you see some difference how the how the field has evolved and also how the attitude and stigma maybe around um, the therapy has evolved throughout the years? Excellent question. So when I wanted to become a psychiatrist, my mom was trying to persuade me away. She was like, how about you become a neurologist or a neurosurgeon? Do you want to be crazy people's doctor? And then uh, then there was stigma everywhere in America and other places of the world as well. But as we are learning more, and I think an important aspect is that we are learning more and more about the brain. We are learning, we are now starting to see mental disorders and mental health conditions the same way we look at high blood pressure. We look at diabetes. There's a trace in the body which is here in the brain. So that awareness has helped a lot. And of course, uh, I mean, to the point that now actually the bias and the stigma is to the other side. Everybody go on TikTok and Instagram. Everybody wants to diagnose themselves with PTSD and ADHD and isn't that illness. So sometimes it becomes an excuse for some people. But uh, I think the more people, because one thing about mental illness is that Again, like high blood pressure, you don't see it in other people, right? It's uh, there, but it's not visible. While they're extremely common and prevalent, like 20, 25% of people have some sort of anxiety disorder or depression, but we don't see it in each other. But when people gradually start to come out and talk about it, then we found these are, I'm not the only one. I'm, it's not something very wrong with me. No, I'm just a human who because of the interaction between my biology and the environment I went through, now I'm suffering from a condition. And I think the other aspect of reduce the stigma is that now we have something to do. When there's no treatment or when you see treatment as something horrible, then you try to fight that diagnosis or hide it. But now we have treatments, whether it's psychotherapy or as a medication, which is light and easy, then you can be feel much better. So it has become less of a dangerously weird thing for people to experience the mental illness. So it was a long answer to your question that over the time as we have evolved our understanding of these conditions and our ways of dealing with them, people have uh, been have become more and more open to them. And mm-hmm. of course, there are some areas of stigma which are harder. Like uh, I said earlier, I work with first responders, cops and firefighters and EMTs. These are people who are a lot more stoic about it they are they want to be in control and I, they see this a loss of control but interestingly even in those groups now we have a lot of peer support programs and they're learning more and more and more and coming uh, and seeking help more so it's a very good time for our field now that's great that's to hear how when you look at um <clears throat> and when you look at the past and I feel like a lot of historical artwork, and I talk about this because both me and Joe are creatives. Um, it, it seems like in today's world, fear and anxiety is getting demystified, which is great because then people are more open to it and, and they treat it as a um, health condition rather than something that, you know, just is fabricated, fabricated in our head. Um, do you ever look at piece of art or like some poetry or literature from the past and you can say that this, this person was dealing with this uh, problem. It's just, it was so mystified in the past and they didn't have a language or vocabulary or even way to identify what's happening to them. So, and I feel like religion, myths and legend, they really work with that. So I, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, do you ever look at 
literature and you can see some diagnosis there. So uh, the book has a chapter of fear and creativity, monsters we forge and monsters mm -hmm. forge us. And I talk about this there. Uh, of course, I can never go inside the mind of a creative person in the past and make a clear diagnosis, except those where the history and the stories and the medical records are so visible that you can make those impressions. But uh, and now you, your question had multiple facets. One facet is that we need an explanation for our conditions, right? And we have mm -hmm. always done that. As humans, we need an explanation. There was a time that, as you mentioned, there was a role of religion and there was a lot of, okay, these are demons, these are evil spirits. There was a time that it was gods, it was uh, animals in the world, it was then my kidney, my liver, my uterus, and then gradually moved towards the brain. And now we have a better understanding and explanation, which is more easier to understand. Because we also always want to feel that this is not me, this is something else. And now that something else is the brain. But going back to creative people, uh, I do see, I mean, and, uh, and unfortunately, sometimes in the creative world, there is some romanticism with depression, with anxiety, with sadness, with sorrow, right? Sometimes, see, I'm a deeper person I'm very, if I'm very sad. But I see that, or like there's this idea that, look, all these creative people were creative because of their mental illness. Van Gogh was so beautifully creative because of his psychosis, this other person because of their depression, anxiety. I actually have a counter argument that the illness colored their art, the illness colored their productivity, the creations that come out of that person now have a tint of depression or anxiety. And if that person did not have that condition, maybe they would produce more because at the end of the day, we know this function is one of the aspects of mental illness. Maybe they could create something more hopeful. Maybe they, would, they could create something more colorful and other and different dimensions. So I would say these people were so resilient and so strong that they were able to be creative despite their mental illness. Of course, creativity also comes to our help. Sometimes you brought up the issue of religion in fighting the fears and anxieties, we basically create ideas, create uh, the explanations that help us reduce our anxieties and fears. For example, there was a time that we were fighting uh, a lot of uh, forces in the nature and we, had, we didn't have a lot of resources. We couldn't protect ourselves against the famines and against uh, uh, floods and all these other natural disasters or predators or other tribes. And then we created ideas about, okay, you make a sacrifice here to this God and you will be protected. And sometimes you overcome those fears and anxieties via creating, uh, basically, let's say one of the biggest fears we have is what? Fear of annihilation, fear of death, fear of non-existence. And one of the ways we overcome that fear by creative word is that now I've multiplied myself. Now I exist in the mind of these other people who have read my book. I exist in the eyes of these other people who have seen my art. And my book, my art, my statue, whatever I've created, mm. the program is going to continue on long after I've died. And that helps a little bit reduce anxieties. I guess see. That's interesting. I'm curious um, if, uh, you know, because sometimes for a creative person, these sort of delusions like help you through your day that that you're you're, you're sort of you sometimes live in a bubble that may not be reality 
but it helps you achieve amazing things. <laughs> is there like a, what is the tipping point between like this, this person is delusional versus this person is, you know, this is actually helping the person is, is it healthy, I guess, to live in a bubble as I do? <laughs> or is there, oh. uh, I'm curious about that. So when you say delusion, delusion is something absolutely wrong and unreal that I believe in that majority of others don't believe in. Then we call it a delusion. Mm -hmm. delusion. There are a lot of th these defenses we all share. A lot of us, whether seriously or jokingly, knock on the wood to just uh, push away some bad omen, right? I wouldn't call that delusional because a lot of us share. It still is. We don't have any evidence that it works. But that's as long as it gives us a sense of control. So let me back up a little bit. And mental illness diagnosis, I think it's important to talk about. So one is anxiety. We all experience some sort of fear and anxiety. Actually, if someone is unable to experience fear, it means there's a brain damage here in the amygdala. We all experience mm -hmm. some level of it. And that level of stress is good. Some level of stress is optimal. I've talked in the book about how to even trigger some of that anxiety that is positive and helpful. When do we call it illness? So there's a degrees from 0% to 100% of panic anxiety. And we draw a line at some level and say, okay, from here on, we call it pathological. So that's one important thing is that anxiety has degrees. It's a gray scale. It's not just black and white. But we call it an illness when there's significant dysfunction or significant distress caused by the situation. So even if I'm hearing mm -hmm. voices and I don't have significant dysfunction and distress, we wouldn't, we wouldn't call it mental illness. So here we, we have defenses, right? We have coping skills. We have coping strategies. Let's say this morning I just jumped in an uh, uh, ice bath, uh, a tiny pool. Is that... Something pathological? No. Is that something I have a lot of scientific proof it helps me? No. But it helps me feel better. So if something helps me feel better and less stressed and be more functional and it is not causing me distress, then I would be okay with it. There are people who, uh, let's say, if someone does cocaine to feel happier, no, I don't recommend it because then the consequences and side effects and risks are much higher than what they gain from it. But if somebody uh, has some rituals, some traditions, some beliefs, some uh, uh, even th there are times that my patients say, oh, I tried this thing, this uh, herbal medicine that worked. I don't have any scientific evidence for it, but I see they're feeling much better. And I know at least there's some level of placebo effect. Why would I want to take away placebo effect from that person? If something is not harming and helping the person, I'm all for it. Interesting. Yeah. I agree. Uh, and we definitely don't want to trivialize serious uh, mental health conditions. So uh, thank you for clarifying it. And thank you for drawing the line where, where the transition is. Um, and uh, my favorite part about the the section you talk about creativity and fear in your book was that fear makes us more rigid as creative, creative people, because we try to like always fit into our safe zone and, and never leave our comfort zone so um i used to you know pride myself in like i use fear to kind of drive me and the, the fear of deadline kind of uh pushes me to deliver good design and i kind of just laughed at myself when i read that because it is true it is like you always try to comply with some structure and with some system and and 
um, I've been running into issues that my design is not very playful because I'm, you know, driven by fear. And so that was very enlightening to read that. So thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that. And as uh, Joe earlier mentioned, a lot of creative people deal with anxiety. Some of that anxiety is because of this. Actually, I start the book with the evolutionary function of fear. And I think that's important to know. What is this thing doing in me? Let's say right now, before this conversation, I was nervous about, oh, how am I going to do on this podcast? Let's say I was at fear of public speaking, and I'm now here and I'm feeling nervous. And my heart is pounding, my hands are sweaty, my attention is distorted. It's not helping me. And it's amazing something that has been, it is so deeply rooted in us and other animals that we look at my colleagues at university, look at the brains of rats and mice to understand how fear works in my brain. So fear is very strong and primitive, and it has just one purpose, keep us safe, keep us safe. And when it comes to safety, one of the most important things is to avoid anything that could be dangerous. And that brings you back and regresses you to more animal state and more rigid state. Now you want to avoid anything that could be novel. What is creativity? Stepping outside of the norms and creating something, exploring something that doesn't exist. When I was doing research, I was trained to do fear conditioning, uh, brain imaging research. Now I'm working with augmented reality, which was some technology I didn't know anything about. Stepping outside of that field and going to a totally different realm poses me to a lot of academic risks, risks of failure. We are trailblazing. We are creating something out of nothing. I would have a lot of chance of failure compared to staying with where I was, which was a very known field. Everybody knew what this, how it's going, and I had a better chance of getting grants. But then you are talking about how you use anxiety to motivate yourself, right? Because it, it's about what I'm afraid of. If I'm afraid of failures, yes, I will get paralyzed. But if I'm afraid that, oh, I have to meet this deadline, otherwise there will not be bread on the table, then that motivates me as long as that fear is within the optimal window. If you define an mm-hmm. optimal window. If I'm too bored, if I'm not nervous at all, I'm sleepy, I am... I prefer to go have fun. I don't do, I don't focus on my energy. And fear creates, anxiety creates energy that can be cultivated. But if I'm too terrified, basically the amygdala animal brain overrides the cognitive brain. I won't be able to think and process things. So we got to be within that sweet spot of a lot of tension and anxiety that motivates and moves us. And you were using that, basically reminding yourself, hey, you got to sit and spend these two more hours on this and create. Yep. We have to find that sweet middle, middle ground. It's, it's interesting because like, I don't know where it started, but, but for my whole life, it's always, it's always felt um, bad to have anxiety, but it's always been the thing that like pushed me into getting somewhere. So, um, so I I guess in a way, anxiety is kind of healthy. Would that be fair to say? So the world without stress doesn't exist. There are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of changes. There are a lot of transitions constantly happening in life. So, of course, there are Buddhas of the world who are absolutely fine and not nervous. Uh, But some level of uh, uncertainty, some level of stress, some level of anxiety does exist in us. But I also agree that a lot of people who have more anxiety depending on what the anxiety is, will be more productive. 
if my anxiety is fear of being around people, well, I will not be socially productive. I will avoid if I have social phobia. But if my anxiety is about productivity, let's say, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking in general. Uh, let's say I was raised by a family who had high achievement, very high in regard. And if you didn't achieve much or a lot, you would not be seen as a successful or as a good person. So there's a fire under me all the time now that I should achieve, I should achieve. Otherwise, I'm not, uh, I'm not good enough. So I go and fight and try to create more and more and more. And that major anxiety actually even overrides other anxieties. That anxiety of wanting to create and wanting to achieve and wanting to gain more overrides the uncertainties out there, which are uh, not uh, basically which would stop me or slow me down. But then there's also the interactions between anxiety and drive, anxiety and motivation, anxiety and novelty seeking. A lot of us get bored. We got to go out there and we got to go out there and explore. But then we are worried, we are scared, we are nervous. Uh, I've had these experiences in my whole life. I had fear of heights all my life. And I ended up finding myself on a mule riding down the Grand Canyon on the edge of the cliff. How do these work together? It's just because I have so many things and so many drives and so many energies within me fighting each other. I love that story. And as a part of the story, you also, also mentioned how the same way as we go to the gym, to get some fitness, which we were, you know, evolutionary, we're supposed to be moving all the time. I love how you said that having those kind of uh, experiences related to fear, such as your mule experience in Grand Canyon, which by the way, sounds amazing, um, that it regulates our nervous system, that it puts things into perspective, but literally like physically in our brain, because you have experienced, you've exposed yourself to fear, which evolutionary we're supposed to be. And then, you know, then I don't know how the science works behind it, but I really like the idea of using that to regulate our nervous system. Would you recommend people to seek fear on a regular basis? I'm becoming more and more of a believer in this hypothesis I uh, came up with when I ended up on that meal. Just to set up some background, I was afraid of heights all my life to the point that I couldn't... Uh, get up uh, uh, on a ladder to the to the attic so now somebody recommended mm -hmm. go do a mule ride down the grand canyon uh, in december when i had some time off i didn't register where i'm going and i will be on the edge of a height so when i am there i see you can see the bottom of this canyon when you're up there it was terrifying to me but then there are all these kids and older people here and i couldn't back off i was embarrassed And of course, I had just that thrill seeking or that like adventure side of me pushing me. I get on this and these mules are just, the trails are narrow and it's uh, icy and sometimes they slip and they like to walk on the edge. And when they make <laughs> my mule's head is off the cliff and I see the bottom. So I had to look off and not look down. So... <laughs> we ended up after a few hours to the bottom, beautiful night there. And the next day uh, we go up and there's something about Arizona that I find so calming, the desert. So after that, for the next few days, I feel I'm not feeling very anxious. So now I have two ideas. One is that maybe we do need that exercise the same way we take our body to the gym. 
to exercise. It's uh, what it is built to do. And now we are experiencing some fears. But the other part, I think, is this. So this system evolved to interact with very concrete dangers. Being on the edge of a cliff, a natural disaster, a predator, another human attacking us with a rock or with a stick. But now we are in the super modern life that anxieties don't make sense to that caveman woman that is inside me. And I usually, I always say the same way when you're dreaming, you're just a passive viewer of what's happening. You don't know what's going on. When you're awake, there's a part of you that is dreaming. And this thing is saying, okay, I have to deal with this deadline, with this grant submission, with this neighbor, with that other person. And it gets terrified and confused. So when we go, when I am on the edge of a cliff in Grand Canyon, what am I afraid of? I'm not afraid of failing an exam. I'm not afraid of not getting (laughs) the grant. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid (laughs) that if I fall, I am done and I'm gone. And now compared to that so real fear, how much do these other anxieties even matter? So put Hmm. things, as you said, in perspective. Now those other anxieties are sitting in their own place. And and that's how a lot of I see uh, a lot of uh, veterans or refugees or first responders who have seen the real danger and are not broken. Mm -hmm. Now they have a different perspective on uh, life and they are not shaken as much by a lot of things that shake people like me and i uh, and now going back to your question do i recommend yes i do recommend thrilling scary situations which are safe i don't recommend people doing something uh, i don't want to recommend anybody go go stand on the uh, hang off of a cliff uh, in grand canyon and i also knowing our own limits Each of us have different limits. A horror movie could be terrifying to one person, scary to another person, boring to another person. Knowing my own limits and always pushing those limits, I do recommend that. And I think it uh, it helps. Because also the other thing you gain is a sense of control and achievement. I can Mm -hmm. overcome something scary. I can overcome something, quote unquote, dangerous. And that I can extend and apply to other areas of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that's so interesting because just like really quickly, I had I've had this weird experience in my life where when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a game designer, but I felt like I was never going to be smart enough, never going to have the connections or the money or whatever it was. I just felt it was impossible. But I said like, oh, I could be a pro wrestler. And so I went to pro wrestling school and for almost about a year. And wrestling school is the hardest thing ever because you are you're half naked in front of people. You have to be really athletic. It's physical. It's, it's, it's hard on all aspects. And after I was done with that, my first thought was like, oh, I could totally be a game designer. That's like nothing <laughs> compared to this. And I went on to design games for 20 years. So it definitely does like raise the bar for you uh, in, in, somewhere in your life. And you have learned I also think- more about yourself. One of the things that going through these kind of adventures, scary situations, whether we created them or the world and the life created them for us, is we learn more about ourselves. We learn what we had in us. Speaking of uh, pro wrestling, when I was a kid, I was like, I was raised to be a scared kid. I was raised to be very Mm. cautious. And I was raised to be the good kid. And... uh, in my older age now, over several years ago, I started doing fitness boxing. 
And then at some point I started doing sparring uh, with the yeah. trainer. Of course, safe. We don't hit each other for a kill. It's more like fencing. You just want to touch and that's it. But the first time I'm in facing this guy, I had done fitness boxing back practice for years. I immediately time travel to my childhood in the school in front of the bully terrified. And then this guy wow. brought me back. Interestingly, my uh, trainer, Reggie, is a the psychology major. And he said he created a cool meaning for it. He said, uh, just imagine how proud that child would be of you now if he was here. So now I am the same person. I had the same potentials. Just the life created the possibility for me to learn that I am capable of standing in front of someone else and sparring with them. Same here, you, through those experiences, discovered more about yourself. Because, and I'm sorry, stop me if I'm go, whenever I'm going on tangents. One of the things which I think is very, very important for every human is that we open our eyes to the world. And the only face we don't see is whose face? Our own face. Our whole mm. understanding of the universe and ourselves for several years is through the eyes of others who are reacting to us, acting towards us, and interacting with each other. So I create a perception of myself, which is not me most of the times, because those other people have their own agendas. My parents had an idea of what I should be and how I should be and what is a good kid, which could be totally different than me. So life, tough life experiences a lot of times allow us to learn about ourselves and know what is in that. How do you know what's the tipping point? Because I feel the same, like I want to throw myself at like challenging experiences and I feel like I always can grow. And you you did say that it's about like knowing your own limits, but how do we know where's the tipping point where something can traumatize someone and they'll never want to return to that activity again? Is there any line that you can identify? First step is uh, to know your limits. You will learn it through life. Number two is mm -hmm. honesty. It's very hard to be honest with oneself about why I'm doing things and what I'm really afraid of. Sometimes I go towards something which is scary because I'm afraid of something else. But I will basically use a parallel. When I have a patient with fear of heights, I don't tell them to go stand on the top of the Sears Tower in Chicago for the first step of the exposure. I say do something you can do. Go stand on the first floor of a building 10 meters away from the window if the fear is too intense. Stay with it until that fear goes down. Stay with it because part of me has associated that experience with danger. Every time I avoid it, my brain basically says, oh, you see, you avoided nothing bad happened. So that is dangerous. You go there, you get terrified, nothing bad happens. Next time you get terrified, nothing bad happens. You develop a new learning that this is safe. Then go to the second floor, third floor, fifth floor. So now with life experiences, I would recommend to people, because you said you don't want to go and fail and be more terrified, right? So start slow. Go, go. If, you're, if my limits is uh, third floor, start with the fourth floor and then go to the next and go to the next. But then there's also the logic of it. There are activities that have a risk of harm to myself and to what is uh, what I like and love, which is part of my identity, my career. And then the, the balancing of what I might gain and what is uh, 
what I might lose. Uh, we, we, we talk about bravery in the book, right? And part of the bravery is basically mm-hmm. those logical analytics because what's on the other side of bravery, it's recklessness, it's stupidity. But sometimes we do something which is very reckless. We don't do any calculations. Just leave my whole job for something that is a 2% maybe without having studies, without having calculated. Well, I may get lucky, but... So we know at, at the core of ourselves, we know when I was uh, uh, my own career ex- example, I finished my residency. I was at, as in, I was at the University of Michigan. Uh, my mentors and others said, you should stay here, be a postdoctoral researcher, then gradually move up and you will be doing the same fear conditioning, brain imaging research. Then this uh, other university, Wayne State University next door says, come here. We don't have it. Be an entrepreneur. Start a research clinic here. But this is better salary. This is better research funds. So I'm now facing leaving what is so comfortable and safe for me and going to something to start something from scratch. So now, is this a stupid decision? Well, some people thought that it was a stupid decision to leave that safe home. But it, at the core of myself, I knew it's, I don't have much to lose. I'm not really loving and liking what I'm doing here. So, and both of the, at the end of the day, I may lose some uh, fancy stuff, some credentials, some, I don't know, some, uh, a couple more papers, but now I am doing something that I have a passion and fire for. And that fire is something that helps us plow through a lot of scary situations. So as long mm-hmm. as you calculate it, I, um, and you know, and, and go step by step. I That's hope you're going to publish another book. I love the book Afraid. Um, and I wish you would have written more about this, but I didn't want it to be at the expense of, you know, writing less about the serious trauma, which I know it's important to talk about as well. So I hope there's going to be a sequel. Actually, the next book, I already have the title. The title of that next book is Alive. What it is to be okay. truly alive. And it speaks mm. about a lot. I love that. When is it coming up? Coming oh, out. I haven't started. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I'm still recovering. You haven't even started? Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I'm excited to read that. I can tell you already. Um, I would be curious to hear more about the EXA research that you do. Um, it sounded like um, basically you do exposure therapy and you help people with traumas to get closer and closer to the fear and build their confidence. Can you talk a little more about that? So uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the videos. I, sh- I might have shared a couple of uh, tiny videos. And if you want, I can share here also. So a lot of fear, phobias specifically, are basically an automatic mm-hmm. condition response. Like a patient comes to me and says, I'm, I know it's stupid, but I'm afraid of spiders. They logically know that spider is sick. And my answer is that it's not stupid. It's illogical. Some of our brain functions are logical and some are basically experience-based and learned. So a best treatment for these conditions is what we call exposure therapy. As we talked about heights, go to the second next floor, next book, gradually get exposed until the fear goes away. It works very well. The challenge is that if I told a person with fear of spiders that I have a tarantula in my office, they would not at all step into my office. Number two is that I don't have a tarantula in my office. I don't have dogs in my office. I don't have snakes in my office. So the first time I learned about augmented reality, it was actually Meta headsets when they uh, Meta was a company and I saw a 
part by Meta's, uh, uh, the, not this Facebook Meta, the Meta Augmented Reality several years ago, which was a startup, and their mm -hmm. CEO was a neuroscientist. And I reached out to him and said, hey, this I think is very cool for what we can do. And they connected me with some programmers. We basically created a prototype where I can, you wear the goggles, I can choose a tiny spider of any kind and put it in that corner of the room. And it was very well with surface mapping, not, not Pokemon Go stuff. It was on the floor, then mm -hmm. you crawl on the wall and go to the ceiling. And then gradually we had more spiders, larger spiders. We did a clinical trial. The first question was that, would people react to digital spiders? with fear because we need that fear and they were terrified that worked then the treatment we did the whole treatment uh gradually more spiders at some point i would put a uh, spider web on the doorway and with spiders on it mm -hmm. they walk through it and uh, we ran, uh, finished the clinical trial which was published everybody was able to touch a real life tarantula or the tank mm -hmm. containing the tarantula in less than one hour one session treatment with permanent effects. Wow. Then we went to fear That's of dogs. Awesome. Right now we are running a clinical trial for fear of the dogs. They come after treatment and hug my uh, great Pyrenees. And these were people who were 10 meters away from the dog before the treatment. Then we went to the realm of humans, which is a lot more complicated. Because for a lot of situations like social anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of these conditions, people are afraid of socializing. People who have been uh, traumatized with PTSD, a lot of them are even housebound. They cannot even do grocery shopping because they're they terrified of being around others. So we basically, what we have now is very, very cool. And as I said, if you want, I can share a short video. Uh, you are a, a virtual, I wear the goggles, I'm in this room. It can be also done remote. A virtual door opens on the wall. And digital humans walking, a couple of people come in that corner, start a conversation, more people come, more people come, somebody comes to me and asks a question. And we are finding we are uh, working with first responders with uh, like I've had cops with PTSD, they were assaulted, they were sh uh, in sh shootings, and they are terrified standing in a corner of the room like this. And this is so mm -hmm. real to I mean, I have created this work, been working with it for years now, and I still walk around these humans, I don't go through them. It's how realistic they are. Mm -hmm, and then we mm -hmm. have aspects that I can choose a human of any background, uh, race, age, uh, sex, body type, outfit, put it in front of you, and I will type what they will say, and you can track with them to basically tailor it to the specific needs of each patient, whether they're socially anxious or they have um, uh, traumas. And next, actually, starting in January, we are going to the next level of programming where we're going to plug in AI. Uh, there's this uh, company uh, in World AI, they create, uh, and disclosure, I don't have any shares with them. I don't have any financial interest. <laughs> so you can use their technology and create a brain and plug it, plug it in into AR. So now I have an augmented reality human, which is run by AI and can have an automated conversation with the patient. So it's a very exciting time with that technology. I'm curious about uh, modularity of the experiences that you do. So how is would there be a way for you to detect the anxiety and the fear that the patient is feeling and to adjust the content based on that? Because I feel like as we work in this industry, there is a lot of talk about customizing the content to the user's needs. And I, I can see a potential in this. Is that something that you have tried out or... Um, 
or, or are planning to do? Absolutely. So uh, the way we do exposure therapy is based on the person's feedback. Mm -hmm. so it may take um, two minutes to go from a tiny uh, 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 spider to a bigger spider or go from a, a German Shepherd to a Rottweiler. Uh, for mm -hmm. one, it may take 15 minutes. And the way we gauge that is two ways. Number one is uh, they're subjective right how mm -hmm. zero to ten how terrified are you and we keep uh, inputting that data in the software and the other one is skin conductance is basically moisture of skin is dependent on my sympathetic nervous system or autonomic re re reaction reactivity so we put these wires on their fingers and we see every time there's a new stimuli there's a peak and it goes up and it goes down and as they habituate it it slows mm -hmm. down based on those we can adjust, okay, now we go to the next level. Now this tall, big guy walks in and stands at that corner. Now three more people come and step by step. Those are preset scenarios, right? And as you said, everyone might have their specific needs and specific challenges. So how could you create a $300,000 software that answers everybody's needs? Impossible. So we started with very generalizable situations. Let's say one is a crowded gathering that everybody with these conditions would find difficult. Another one is a grocery store because functioning is important to us. For uh, Because this is mainly within a project for, for serving first responders and that's where our funding is coming, we have a police station, fire station, because a lot of firefighters and cops, after the trauma, they cannot go back to work. They are so terrified and have associated that workplace to pain that they avoid it. So now the library of characters that we have can help with that. We can, I can customize what I'm writing to a specific needs of each person. And when the AI comes in, and if we can, one of what we are envisioning is that the therapist can write that brain. So the therapist can write, okay, now this is a date, and my patient is practicing dating while I'm next to them, next to them. This is a job interview. They are practicing a job interview. But, and then we are hoping we can at some point automate, because the, I explained what I explained is basically an algorithm, right? Your anxiety goes from 10 to five, 8 to 5 to 4. Now we go to the next level. Next it goes up, goes down to 4. So this can be automated. So basically based on your verbal input, to the software or the skin conductance or more modern AI uh, goggles when they come up, the, the, the uh, pupil diameter, we can just go to the next and next level. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, That's so cool. Very impressive work. Um, I wonder, and Joe, I keep asking all the questions. If you, sorry, I don't mean to like monopolize this. If you have any questions, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> um, but I, I do want to follow up on this and ask, um, so... Me and Joe, we have worked on soft skill training as well. It didn't have like full on AI where you can modify it as much and, and it wouldn't respond to the user's reactions as much, but it was, you know, soft skill training for corporate world. Um, there were some other hard skill trainings as well, you know, maintains of devices and all of that. Um, and now I'm exploring um, areas in my personal projects, um, areas where I could work with uh, maybe kids from you know, poor areas that maybe experience uh, toxic stress. And I wonder, uh, there's some there's some use cases where mixed reality can help them uh, gain some skills. Um, and I wonder, is there any way how mixed reality or virtual reality, basically dealing with fear isn't the main purpose, but 
it accommodates some soothing effect where because they have separated themselves from their environment, um, they're able to now focus on the content. Can you see any scenario where mixed reality can achieve that? Uh, because I've seen some, you know, like meditational apps and, and things like that. But I wonder, like, can can mixed reality help with things like amygdala hijacked and, and toxic stress and really like inability to focus? Can you see a solution like that? I mean, one of the things I can see is learning skills, because one of the things being mm-hmm. in stressful, toxic, painful, traumatic experiences as a child, environments as a child is basically learning the or not not learning coping skills or learning the uh maladaptive coping skills if my environment has been violent my only reaction to stress or disagreement or conflict is either run away or be violent because i haven't learned any i have to be a victim or i have to be a a violent person so Mm -hmm. basically i can interact with because that's a big chunk of therapy right i can interact with uh, let's say i'm a child I interact with a nice adult. I interact with a few other kids who are not bullying me. And I interact and learn how to, first of all, basically practice safety around those people. So that can be the soothing aspect, soothing aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who is giving me affirmation, somebody who is offering a, a calming environment. But then I can also practice next to someone, whether it's a real therapist or a virtual therapist or an AI therapist, that is basically helping me navigate those difficult situations. Let's say I, the little kid that I was, and I was in the backyard in front of the bully. Now I am wearing the AR and there's a digital bully in front of me. And I'm practicing basically next to my trainer now here, how to deal with those situations, how to interact with those situations and how to be stronger in those conditions. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. uh, but when it comes to Skills training could be anything learning, anything that could even be empowering. What would stop us from having the digital uh, AR, AI person in front of me teaching me how to do Kung Fu, how to do self-defense, how to do any kind of skills that gives me a sense of control and empowerment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I love the idea of really focusing on the social skills and, and or not social skills, but like learning to adapt to the environment. So if I want to make uh, an app about how these kids that are from, you know, they, they normally live in slums and now they have to go to school and experience this new environment. It happens a lot actually now with not even slums, but let's say refugee camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now have to attend a public school system in a different language, different country. And they, there's a lot of stress aspects. And so, you know, like the content would probably be something about, um, you know, learning the the language and interacting with, with objects or people in that language. Uh, but then a secondary aspect would be how do I function in this environment? Getting you used to like being at school and maybe that type of school is not something they have experienced in the past. So I, I can definitely see um, some use cases and application to that. So absolutely um, we are uh, we actually yep. are working i said earlier i work with refugees and one of the projects we have is mm-hmm. uh, we have a statewide project across the state of michigan we are teaching schools how to work with refugee children and have to know their specific needs and challenges but now you're talking mm-hmm. about the other side of it i mean one of the biggest challenges for refugee children is 
school anxiety or separation anxiety part is because of uh, because mm-hmm. of the fact that if you come from an environment of trauma you don't want to leave your parents side uh, because you want to be with them the other part is mm-hmm. all the knowns you describe so i can practice being in those situations i can practice interacting with an american kid or uh american environment within that realm i mean and, and i think one reason actually our interventions like art therapy dance therapy worked for kids was besides the art and dance was the group component where they could practice within a new environment with their own peers how to navigate this these challenges how to navigate the environment and sense of empowerment mm-hmm. that now and i'm an immigrant myself right and uh I assume you're an immigrant also, Pauline. And uh, we yes. had to learn a lot of things. I had to think to the level of uh, non-verbal interactions. Where I come from, the eye contacts are longer and more focused in your eyes. So now here, if I have mm-hmm. that kind of eye contact, the other person will be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you staring at me? So we had to learn all these tiny details of how to interact with the environment for the environment to be comfortable with us and not see us as an outsider. Yeah, it's definitely, and burns so much energy. I remember I studied in Vienna, I'm from Slovakia, and Mm -hmm. just like my brain computing in German all day, I would come home and I would just fall asleep, you know, it's so exhausting. And, um, and you know, like I've, I'm not a refugee or anything like I was it was all voluntarily and I can only imagine what traumatic experiences must be where you go to an environment with new language you have this trauma on top of that and and it must be such challenging environment so um, I always try to come up with use cases that you know the field that we work with in me and Joe how can it help um, you know people like that and kids like that so yeah I can talk about this for another hour, but <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one giant company we worked. For. They had a really tough problem with um, turnover rate. So, <laughs> yeah, it's so so um, their employees would would quit after like a week or two, and it's because that they're everyone they they hired entry level. They were just cold calling people, and they were just getting screamed at all day. And that was their interaction with people was that they were just, they'll cold call someone, the person would scream at them, and then they could only take that for a couple of days and then quit. And so we built something where we sort of simulated an angry person talking to you. And so what it did was it got them used to like, oh, yeah, there's this person, they're not real, but I know what it's like to get screamed at all day. Mm-hmm. And it it like greatly improved their their retention because they were able to, we were able to simulate that situation for them. So it's interesting how 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 effective simulation is in all aspects, like visual, like oral, like all kinds. Of, it's it's so interesting. It's the power of actually we are we are we have had a couple of conversations with the same company about uh, uh, mixed reality technologies that we might want to use in future. Uh, but uh, it's the it's also the power of learning skills one of the things that is very helpful in overcoming anxiety and fear is a sense of control meaning Mm. if i actually did very cool research there were two groups of rats two different sets of cages and they would get shocked one group of rats had learned that they have to turn the wheel and the shock would stop 
The other group of rats didn't have the wheel, but every time the other group basically turned the wheel, their shock stopped. So they both got the same amount of shock. But the group that had a sense they have some control over the shock, they were a lot less impacted than the other group. So that sense of control is extremely, and we talked a little earlier about it, an imaginary sense of control, right? I'm going to sacrifice to the gods and something bad will not happen or something good will happen. But here now is a better sense of control, which I achieved through training. I now know what to do. Do you, The metaphor of somebody screaming at you, when I started my residency training in a psychiatric emergency, there were times that there was this severely psychotic, aggressive, strong person in front of me screaming at me. And when I started, I was terrified. And one reason I was terrified was mm-hmm. that I didn't know what are my resources and what I can do and I can deal with it. Now, several years uh, later, I am the same person. I'm older, which means I'm less strong. But I am a lot more composed and a lot more in control because now I have learned what are the signs somebody escalating? What are the signs somebody could be dangerous or violent? What are my resources? What are the things I can do? What are the tools? What are the verbal tools? I can use to de-escalate them. And that gives me a huge sense of control that reduces the anxiety and fear and stress. So when people know what to do, then they know how to deal with the situation. And that's why unknown is so scary to a lot of us. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your favorite way to experience fear? As we're wrapping up, I'm curious. Yeah, what's my uh, favorite way of experiencing fear? Uh, interestingly, so I had a, this, uh, recent interview actually last week, yeah, last week I got an interview with the hidden brain and they kept asking me about the situations that terrified me or held me back. The, 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 the paradox I have is that I am scared of some situations, but I throw myself in them automatically. And it's not that I am trying to do exposure therapy. That's my, maybe a counterphobic reaction. Uh, so haunted houses scare me. And I go to them the once a year, a couple of years. Hi, when I uh, recently I was in Arizona, I went and stood on the edge of that cliff, not too close to the edge, because number one, I don't want to be crazy. Number two, I'm too scared. But that becomes so mindful at that moment. I wasn't thinking of anything else. I was so focused and I was trying to breathe as uh, uh, slow and deeply as I can. Uh, my favorite fear, I think, is uh, because I'm lazy, is horror movies, because you can do it on the couch. But I, as I said, I've started this like ice plunge now. It's not scary. It's scary to my body, not scary to my cognitive brain. My body is terrified when I get in there because it's feeling that I'm about to die. But I found I've started like a couple. I've been doing it for a couple of weeks. It's uh, I find it very rewarding and fun. Okay. Yeah, well, if you want some exposure therapy, uh, therapy, I created a virtual reality haunted house, uh, so I could I could show it to you if you want. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let's set that up. Um, is there anything that? Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty scary, actually. Um, is there anything that that motivates you today? Do you still use a fear? Do you do it on purpose to motivate you? Fears that I do on purpose to motivate me. Um, I think the biggest fear that I keep in mind is death. Or not in a sense that I'm terrified of dying. So when I made my dad passed away about five, six years ago, 
And at that time when he died, that was my first real encounter with death. Because with others, strangers who die, it's just a concept. But it becomes real. And another important fact was I'm next in line. So I faced my own mortality and remember that my minutes are numbered now. And that motivates me because now I know I have a limited amount of time and energy. Where do I want to spend this? So fear of wasting it, fear of losing it, fear of losing it to something mm-hmm. unimpactful, unimportant, irrelevant helps. And that, that has helped me focus more on the meaning right now as an academic. I really don't care much about the number of my papers anymore. I don't uh, care about the number of dollars on my grants. Of course, there are things I have to do to keep my job, right? But beyond that, I mostly focus on impact. Every time something comes up, how much is it going to help some other people or make a change or make an impact? Otherwise, well, I'm going to die. And I wasted this very limited amount of time I have. So I think that's the more of a kind of an existential fear that uh, motivates me to try to create more. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for spending your very limited time with us and precious time. Um, where can where can people find you and your book um, so that you can make more impact? So the book is Afraid, Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. It will be available anywhere people buy books, uh, on, online, mostly Amazon. Uh, or the publisher website, it's Roman in Littlefield. Uh, myself, uh, Arash Javanbach, last name. It's, uh, Russell Kennedy actually told me if you want people to remember your first name, say it's Arash, like Arash on your skin. <laughs> and uh, the, my last name is J-A-V-A-N-B-A-K-H-T. On Instagram, I sometimes post some uh, basically practical tips about dealing with anxiety, uh and, and, of course, our, our research lab, Stark Lab, uh, with C-S-T-A-R-C, uh, I'm sorry, S-E-A-R-C, yeah, lab.org, which is basically a research lab where all the work we are doing is there. Uh, all my public scholarly work, the pieces I write, the radio, TV interviews I do, we uh, post a copy there for the public. Awesome. Thank you so awesome. much. And, uh, Thank you and so much. You forgot to mention the book Alive. Come will be eventually published. Stay tuned. Very much appreciate this thoughtful conversation. I really, I learned through this conversation, and I came up with better ideas. Uh, So I really enjoyed, and uh, thank you so much for what you are doing for this. Such an impactful thing you are doing, taking out of your precious time and doing this for the public. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about this show, including where you can find our book, Blueprint for Fun, you can visit us at harbingeroffun.com. See you next episode.